At Maximus, we are focused on the future of federal government. We deliver mission-driven innovation at speed and scale, turning insights into impact. We are a top systems integrator and leading provider of transformative technology services, digitally enabled customer experiences, and clinical health services. We help agencies navigate obstacles and anticipate the unexpected by becoming more agile, empowered, effective, and ready for what lies ahead. We are Maximus, moving people forward. Learn more at Maximus.com federal. Introducing the new era of digital identity with SoCure, the leading provider of digital identity verification solutions. The world is shifting to digital services. More and more people are expecting everyday transactions and government services to be readily available online. But this shift has also created new opportunities for fraudsters and identity thieves, which can put individuals and organizations at risk. That's why SoCure has developed a suite of cutting-edge digital identity verification solutions that can help prevent fraud while also ensuring equitable access for all demographics. SoCure leverages machine learning, AI, and biometric capture to provide fast and accurate verification, even for those without traditional forms of identification. Whether you're a government agency looking to modernize your identity verification processes or a business looking to protect your customers and prevent fraud, SoCure has the expertise and technology to help. Join the digital identity revolution with SoCure and help build a more secure, efficient, and equitable world. Visit SoCure.com to learn more. That's S-O-C-U-R-E.com. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. Most talented people don't make the decision to become the best. And the few that decide to become the best, uh, they burn out relatively quickly or they attain a good enough standard for them. Is it the best? No, but you know what? It's still good. And they're the ones that decide, you know what? I want to be the best. And the sacrifices those people make to get there are extraordinary. And of course, again, books are written about, well, maybe this wasn't worth it because you are going to sacrifice. Because one of the interesting things, if you study Angela Duckworth and her book about grit, grit is about basically making a really serious commitment in a very uncomfortable way. So the question for most of us is, we don't really have the grit to make those choices because they are too difficult and you sacrifice too much. Welcome back to the Govern Huddle podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. 22 NCAA championships in over 30 years, a winning percentage of over 93% of the team's games, over 20 national players of the year. These are just some of the numbers that describe the success of the University of North Carolina women's soccer program over the last several decades. And my guest today is the man that leads that group, head coach Anson Dorrance. His success is due in part to great players and support staff, but also to a style of coaching that maximizes the potential for high-performing competitive individuals to gel into championship teams. 
So how does he create an atmosphere where players must be competitive in everything they do, yet are able to come together so well as a team on the field? Competition and teamwork, which is a powerful but often elusive combination. At the center of his data-driven approach is an idea he learned from legendary UNC men's basketball coach Dean Smith. Coach Dorrance measures and tracks everything his players do in practice and calls this atmosphere the competitive cauldron. So what can you learn from this championship soccer coach? As a leader and a high performer in your organization, you have the ability to create an atmosphere where your employees can practice core skills, get measured feedback, and drive performance improvements. Leaders and managers not only need to give their employees the opportunity to develop crucial professional skills, but just as importantly, they need to understand how to motivate their employees. This is just one of the many lessons I think you're going to learn from Anson during our conversation, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome him. Thanks so much for being here, Coach. My pleasure. First of all, I'm a, everybody who listens to this knows I'm a huge soccer guy. I've played soccer my whole life, um, so it's a real honor to be, be talking today, having you on the show. But something that whenever I hear your name, the first thing that pops into my head, it brings me back to being in English class in high school. And it's a long time ago, but on the wall of my English teacher, uh, English teacher's class was a poster of Mia Hamm, drenched in sweat, hands on her knees with a quote from you. And that quote is that vision of a champion quote is someone who is bent over, drenched in sweat and and the point of exhaustion when no one else is watching. And I remember looking at that and it changed, just seeing that quote from you changed how I approached from a work ethic perspective, the game, how, how I went about um, trying to get better every single day and not worrying about if anybody was watching. It was really important to me. Take me back to, to when that happened. And for a lot of the listeners that might not know that story, you weren't even supposed to be driving by her that day. It was a different route to work, right? And it just so happened that you saw her there working. Tell, tell the listeners that story. Yeah, so this is uh, in the second semester of Mia's senior year. And obviously, uh, we're a first semester sport. We're a fall sport. So basically, our season was done. Uh, Mia had a wonderful run with us. Uh, we call her a five-time national champion because in a year that uh, she decided to redshirt uh, was a World Cup year. So uh, it was really interesting. We had the U.S. Women's National Team training here in the morning at 10 a.m. And then I would train my college kids at uh, 2.30 p.m. And so this particular year, uh, Mia would train with the U.S. full team in the morning um, and then not participate because she actually came into school early. So uh, this was she'd already won five national championships uh, with us. Uh, even though one year she was ineligible to play with us because she was training with the U.S. national team before going to China in 1991. But uh, this was a relatively cool morning. It was in the uh, sort of uh, late winter, early spring, and it was kind of cold out. And as you pointed out correctly, there are a lot of ways I can get into work. The fastest way actually is for me to whip out from uh, – Estes Drive Extension, hit Martin Luther King, jog through a couple side streets, and I end up in my office. And that's the fastest way, and that usually takes anywhere from 8 to 12 minutes. There's a longer route, but it's more scenic through a park. And on this particular morning, I decided to take the more scenic ride. Just coincidentally, I'm driving through the park, and out of the corner of my eye, I can see this figure 
going five and back, 10 and back, 15 and back, 20 and back, 25 and back. And of course, that's a draconian fitness exercise we call cones. And it's absolutely exhausting. And there's no way anyone would do this voluntarily. I mean, that's something we used to do with a team that would be the you know, last of, uh, two or three weeks before we're competing in the NCAA tournament. Uh, so it's just sort of like an end fitness day. And it's also something we did just before the world championship began, just to demonstrate that we were fit. And uh, I could see this person out of the corner of my eye, and it, it did sort of look like Mia. And so basically, uh, I pulled the car into a parking lot and just watched her, and she didn't even know I was there. And I was just so impressed because she didn't just, you know, do one or two and then pack it in. Uh, we basically do 10 of them. And she was doing repeats and just going and going and going and going. And, and so uh, I was just so impressed. I drove into work, uh, scribbled a note to her, dropped it in the mail, and I forgot about it. Ten years later, in a book she wrote that she sent to me, the title of her book was Go for Gold. There in the breastplate of the book was the note I had written her. And it just was so heartfelt that she had kept the note. And obviously when she wrote the book, she told the publisher, I want this to be in the breastplate of the book. And so, uh, you know, she basically in a note to me, she says, Anson, open up the breastplate of the book. And there's the note, the vision of a champion is someone who's bent over, drenched in sweat at the point of exhaustion when nobody's watching. And the reason I wrote her that note is the final measure in athletic greatness is what you do when you're unsupervised. Everybody goes to practice. I would say most people work hard at practice. You know, most people, uh, you know, grind away, obviously, during games. But that's not the measure of the truly great players. The truly great players are doing things beyond the training environment, and the game environment, which is what makes them exceptional. I mean, everyone uh, uses the old, uh, I think it's a Bobby Knight cliche, but the will to win is overrated in athletics because everybody wants to win. It's the will to prepare that makes the difference. And so what I was doing in writing her that note is I was letting her know that she had arrived because obviously everyone has extraordinary talent. Uh, at a program like ours, uh, we recruit some wonderful athletes, but you know, not all of them make it. So what's the issue? What's the difference between the ones that make it and the ones that don't? Well, the ones that make it are the Mia Hams that get up at the crack of dawn and when it's cold out and do something you would never select to do. I mean, it's just, it's agonizing to do this exercise, this, this cardiovascular fitness platform. And there she was doing it. Um, and it was just so impressive for me. And then sure enough, she ascended, became the world's best player and and her history right now is written. Uh, and that was a piece of it. The piece of it was, you know, uh, just seeing what she was doing when no one was there. Uh, and now everyone knows all about her because those sorts of investments are what separate you. There's so many different, I think, really good comparisons between sports and life. They tie so well together. I think that's one of one obvious one. I think whether you're playing a sport, whether you're at your job, no matter what it is, if you're putting that effort in to get better when nobody else is watching, th that's the difference between people, like you said, that are great. I'm curious to get your your take here, though. You've worked with a lot of high-level athletes, obviously, as the as the coach at University of North Carolina, but also as the uh, former uh, women's national team coach. Do you think a work ethic like that 
the one that it takes to really be great. Did you think it's something that is just innate in someone or is that something that you can really learn from an environment that you're in? I think it's based on the athlete's ambition. If you're not ambitious, uh, you're never going to do it. And uh, the ambition comes from, all right, you're young, you know, you're six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old, and you dominate all of your sports because you're an incredible athlete. And you never really had to break a sweat because you're just, you're dominant. And all of a sudden you're in your early teens and mid-teens. And again, you're pretty, pretty good athlete. So you don't really have to work that hard to sort of dominate games. And the same thing continues to, uh, you're gifted. So all of a sudden you're off to college on a, a sports scholarship. And again, um, now you got to work a little bit harder because obviously everyone else is getting uh, pretty close to where you are. Now you just work a little bit. But there's a final level when you decide that you want to be the absolute best. That decision um, was a decision actually Mia made in my office. And uh, it was in a book, and I can't remember the, the book anymore. But Mia shared the story with uh, someone, and I read it in a book shortly after she shared the story because the author of the book sent the book to me. And I'm reading the story that Mia is telling. This isn't my story. This is Mia telling the story. And uh, I do remember the moment. And it, it's a moment I'll have with any athlete. All they've got to do is to declare where they want to go. So she's in my office one day and uh, we're chatting and may even have been a player conference. And I meet uh, uh, with official player conferences with my kids three times a year. And all of a sudden in the player conference, she says, uh, I want to be the best. And oh my gosh, if a player gives that to me, it's gold. And I said, okay. So I stood up uh, just to make this dramatic. And I went around behind her where the light switch for the room was and I turned it off and I turned it on and I walked back around. I sat back at my desk and she's sitting across the desk from me. And I said, well, uh, this is a light switch decision, but you've got to make it every day. You have the talent to be the best, but there are a lot of people out there that have the talent to be the best. But they just don't have to make the decision. First of all, they never declare it. Um, and you've declared it. You said, you've told me you want to be the best. And now comes the hard part. You've got to make that decision every single day. And then all of a sudden, the example of her running in the park was one of the examples of her making that decision that day. And there's another uh, really great example that I have my kids read because it's such a powerful example. Uh, it sort of explains the human condition and just explains where this athlete went. And I have so much admiration for her because I remember looking at her when she was a junior in high school, or maybe it was even when she was a sophomore in high school. And, uh, you know, we try to look at all the best players in the country. It was a youth national team camp. And I think they were in there with the U15s and the U17s. And I can't remember if she was with the U15s or U17s, or maybe there was even a U19 national youth team in camp. So in theory, this girl was one of the best youth players in the country. And I'm looking at her, and she's a good player, but I go, nah, I don't think so. We're not going to chase her. 
So basically, uh, she ended up being recruited to Rutgers. Rutgers chased her. And then uh, following an absolute remarkable career, she writes this book. And uh, I read the book, uh, and I was just stunned at how extraordinary it was. The player was Carly Lloyd. And she writes this incredible book. In fact, uh, I've got that book right here. And one reason I have it right here is because every sophomore in my program has to read this book. And the reason they have to read this book is because of the chapter in the book called Smackdown. Smackdown is one of the greatest chapters in any sports book I have ever read. Uh, because when I talk about it with my kids, I review this chapter like it's biblical. Uh, because if they can sort out the issues in this chapter, and here's the, the title of the chapter, Smackdown, um, they're going to get to the promised land. So Mia tells the story of her decision to be the best. There is incredible detail in Carly Lloyd's version of her going up to this gentleman by the name of James Galanis. And Carly has decided post-college she wants to be the best. And he meets with him and he, he hasn't decided whether or not he's going to actually work with her. He watches her a bit, studies her, maybe watches her in a game or two, maybe watches her in a training session. And then the essence of the SmackDown chapter is shared with us in Carly's book. And basically what's wonderful about this SmackDown is it was a SmackDown. He's basically telling her that she's lazy. She doesn't compete. You know, yep, she has some talent, but, you know, there's so many pieces missing in her psychological dimension and everything else. Uh, he's not sure that uh, it would be worth it for him. And she begs him and she says, I'll do anything you like. And all of a sudden he starts throwing things out that are impossible for a young woman to agree with. She says, if I call you at 830 on a Saturday night and you're at a party and I say, let's train, will you leave that party and come train with me? In other words, he's trying to get her to make a real commitment to becoming the best she can be. And again, to make a long story short, of course, when you look at Carly's career, she was, for a stretch, the best player in the world. Her impact in that World Cup where she scored a hat trick in the World Cup final to beat Japan, including that shot from the midstripe, which is you know, one of the most incredible goals in women's soccer history, is absolutely extraordinary. So there are these moments when you have to decide who you want to be. And uh, who knows what gets you there? Um, because I'll tell you this, if you decide that's where you want to go, it is exhausting. And the other thing is, you know, from my conversations with Mia during that one player conference, you've got to make this decision every day. This isn't the sort of thing, well, yeah, I'm a little tired now. I'm going to spend a couple months in the Bahamas and recover. No, 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 no. And uh, I'm one of these guys, obviously, because he's a Tar Heel. I've read every book written about Michael Jordan. I watched The Last Dance about 15 times um, every episode because uh, I wanted to get to the core of what makes people absolutely extraordinary. And the people that become absolutely extraordinary, it's not about you know developing you know deep and lasting friendships all over the world or this, that, and the other thing. There's a core principle about committing yourself to your craft and then basically uh, bleeding in every pore on a consistent basis to get there. So this is what uh, most people don't do. 
uh, most talented people don't make the decision to become the best. And the few that decide to become the best, uh, they burn out relatively quickly or they attain a good enough standard for them. Is it the best? No, but you know what? It's still good. They're either, you know, on scholarship at a collegiate level or starting for their high school team or they've made the national team and, you know, they, they come off the bench or they're a starter, but they're more of a role player in the best 11, not the best player in the field. And they're the ones that decide, you know what? I want to be the best. And the sacrifices those people make to get there are extraordinary. And of course, again, books are written about, well, maybe this wasn't worth it. Sacrificing my marriage, you know, my friendships, all these different things, my relationships. Um, I'm not sure it was worth it because you are going to sacrifice. And then you can protect yourself by saying, oh, no, no, no. I want to lead a balanced life. So, yeah, I want to play at a pro level. You know, I want to have an occasional visit into the national team. But I don't want to be the best. I just want to have a high quality life, but I want to have my life with balance. Because one of the interesting things, if you study Angela Duckworth and her book about grit, grit is about basically making a really serious commitment in a very uncomfortable way. So the question for most of us is we don't really have the grit to make those choices because they are too difficult and you sacrifice too much. It sounds like if you and I, if we compared bookshelves, there'd be very similar books on that shelf. One <laughs> of the one of the guys that I like a lot is David Goggins. And as, as you started talking, the things that you were saying in my head, it reminded me of a quote that he has. And because that pe things that, that you were saying, some people are going to think, wow, that's crazy. And he has this thing where he says, I'm not crazy. I'm just not you. And I think we all have our own ambition. Like you said, the, the difference is really ambition. We all have our own ambition and we all have a threshold to where we'll go. And I think the people that, that do hit that, that great level, they just decide, you know what, there is no place I won't go. If you show me a new place, I will find a way to get there. But herein lies my question. How do you know what players you can push to that level and the ones that you can't? And even more than that, how do you, because obviously a big part of your job is recruiting. How do you recruit players that you think have the attributes that you can push to get to that point? Honestly, in the recruiting process, I have no clue. In fact, I've made so many mistakes in recruiting. I have a drawer filled with them um, because you see this talent. And here's what goes through your mind when you're recruiting. And maybe uh, this is unique to me, but I can't imagine it would be. I think we're all similar in this regard. You're looking, you're at a game and you're watching this kid play. And all of a sudden you're going, oh, my gosh. Let's recruit that kid. I think that platform this kid's playing from, we can take that to another level. We can really help that kid get to her dreams. And why am I thinking that? Because this kid is so much like that sophomore, you know, I saw, you know, four or five years ago that's now on the national team. And this kid's similar. So what I've done in, in my library of successes, kids we brought in that have played at the highest level, won gold medals in the Olympics, won world championships. Um, this 
kid is checking those boxes while I'm watching her. Now, of course, I'm not in her brain, so I don't really know if this kid would survive a SmackDown conversation with James Galanis uh, and say, oh my gosh, there's no way I'm going to work with you, Jim. If you call me at 8.30 on a Saturday night and I'm at a party, no freaking way am I leaving that party to come train with you. Uh, so you can't get into that that athlete's brain to find out what they're willing to sacrifice to become the, the best. So you recruit talent. And then what you're hoping is that you get athletic character with it. Because if you don't have a combination of talent and athletic character, they're never going to make it. And by the way, um, a part of them making it is to actually have some real character as well. Uh, because uh, those are going to be the relationships this athlete forms with the people around them. Uh, How do you but, identify that athletic character before they, they get to, to Chapel Hill? I don't. I can't. Uh, because, again, as I mentioned earlier, I've got a drawer full of mistakes. Yeah. Um, and it's just you're hoping that uh, their talent matches their athletic character and that matches their real character. And it's a crapshoot. And you just sit there and you're, you're actually waiting for the first day of preseason. You're waiting. And um, I mean, it's so funny. And uh, Chris Dukar, my longtime uh, point in recruiting, uh, teases me about this all the time. Um, we'd go to watch these kids play and all of a sudden we'd decide on the, on the kids we were going to recruit. And obviously we don't get everyone we want. I mean, a lot of great programs are out there. Uh, take some kids that we were desperate for, and uh, but we get our share. We get you know uh, four or five kids that can that can play. So we're excited. We're looking forward to uh, them coming into UNC. And then, of course, what you're also doing after they've committed is you're watching them play. My dilemma, and I don't know if this is unique to me or if a lot of other coaches have this similar sort of problem. When I'm looking at a kid to evaluate them to recruit them. All I see is their strengths. The day after they've recruited to me, committed to me, I'm sorry, all I can see are their weaknesses. And we'll go to a tournament and we've got, you know, I've watched four or five kids that have committed to us in the tournament and I'm watching them and I'm standing there with Chris. And I'm going, oh my gosh, I didn't see that before. You know, she doesn't do this. She doesn't do that. And Chris, who's six foot six, stands there with his arm draped over uh, my shoulder saying, we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. Because all these kids I thought were unbelievable. Now that I'm looking at them through the light of what am I going to have to do to get to the promised land? Now I see every weakness they have. So no, I would love to pretend to you I've got some sort of magic formula that uh, tells me what their athletic character is that I call everyone they're related to and I get this profile that's like an algorithm uh, that I could you know, form a uh, a data analytics uh, profile with, but no, all I do is it's, it's a crapshoot. They're talented. I know that. And now all the human elements come in. They might be lazy. They might be selfish. They not, might be uncoachable. Uh, they might not uh, like to compete in practice. I mean, they might have all these different issues. And so now on the first day of practice, I start to see if they're checking any boxes. Did they come in fit? Did they come in played in? Did they come in healthy? In other words, all the different elements that tell me 
Are they going to be a player that's going to get better every semester? Or is this going to be a project? Or is this kid never going to make it? Because all of a sudden, when all things are equal, they don't compete. They were only dominant because in every environment they were in growing up, they were the alpha. And they didn't have to break a sweat to dominate. And all of a sudden, they're running into people of their level. Then it takes a different sort of mentality to beat someone that's as good as you are. So do they have that piece? And to be honest, I'd love to sit here and tell you that, no, I'm, I've got these unbelievable insights into that. I do not. Now, that heavy lifting task of taking a flawed athlete to the promised land is the challenge. Because then you've got to figure out ways to motivate them. You've got to figure out ways for them to trust you. Because if they don't trust you, they're not going to listen to you. Um, you've got to be able to figure out all the different ways to try to drive them uh, to their potential. And a lot of them are going to be fighting you. They're going to be fighting you to stay at a more comfortable level. They're going to be fighting you to preserve uh, a personal narrative that's not the truth. And the personal narrative that they're fighting you to keep is a narrative that's oftentimes shaped by their parents. They're blaming you for their failures, not their, their darling daughter or son. No, and all of a sudden you're, you're fighting all these different elements. And so the, the coaching profession is not an easy one. And it is exhausting. And uh, you're fighting the, the athlete that actually does want to get to another level. But there's so many elements in that athlete's character that are making it difficult for her to get there. I, th I think why. we see si similar things. Sorry to cut you off. I think we see similar things when leaders get promoted into certain roles and they, they excelled in the position. If they're an individual contributor or whatever they were doing, they excelled in that position because they didn't have as much to, to really compete with or, or to do. And they get promoted into a role and now they're leading a team. And all of a sudden there's more variables. There's, there's a higher level they have to hit and they just can't live up to it. I think it's a really similar comparison, right? Yeah. Well, I really like uh, what you're saying because uh, I was going to share the story of another great athlete. <clears throat> the, uh, the athletes that are easiest to coach are the ones that want you to tell them what they need to work on. The athletes that want you to sort of expose their weaknesses. And uh, I had this phenomenal athlete that I coached on the national team by the name of Michelle Akers. <clears throat> and uh, I would obviously, when you're on a national team tour, you have all kinds of free time. So I'm meeting with these athletes all the time. And I had sort of a, a policy back when I was coaching the national team is I would meet with every athlete for uh, two minutes or five minutes before every game. It would usually be in the morning before the game if it was an afternoon or evening game. <clears throat> and in those two to five minutes, I would tell them what their role was going to be on the team, whether or not they're going to start, what my expectation was of their performance, blah, 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 blah. The thing I loved about Michelle is with a lot of the athletes, you've got to sort of protect them from the possibility uh, that they're not God's gift to the game. So you're always, you know, trying to protect any sort of criticism with the sandwich approach. You tell them something positive about their game, something they need to work on, and then something positive about their game. So you've got this positive, negative, positive sandwich that you've made. So they come in, you've connected with them. They're engaged because you've told them something nice about their game. Now you're saying, but, you know, we got to do a little bit better at this. Now you, you've sort of attacked them a little. Now you finish up with a but, but I'll tell you this. The direction you're going in is tremendous, blah, 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 blah. So that's classic. Michelle didn't want to waste time with the positive parts of the sandwich. 
All she wanted was criticism. She would sit there and she would, I would criticize her and all she would do, her head would nod quickly and that's it. What that meant was answer and go on to the next criticism because I want to hear it because I don't want to just be the best player in the world. I want to be the greatest player of all time. All yeah. she wanted was criticism. And then um, if there was time enough in the meeting, all right, what can I do to improve that? And then I would give it to her. And then she would say, well, I tried that. Um, what about this? And I would say, all right, I haven't thought of that, but yeah, try that. So the other thing uh, didn't work. She says, well, I don't think it's going to work as well as this. So it was almost like she and I, in reviewing her own game, were going over a laboratory of the human spirit. And it was an exchange back and forth. The thing I loved about it, she absolutely trusted me. And it gets us to, you know, the challenge that all of us have in leadership roles. And, and I want to share this with you because this is absolutely genuine. One of the hardest things to do in women's athletic is to develop leaders because they're so afraid of what people are going to think of them if they're trying to hold their teammates accountable. So the sort of girl in a game that's basically, you know, trying to hold everyone on the field to a higher standard is barking out this or barking out that, even making the statement about barking, that has a negative connotation uh, in women's athletics. They want to be, they don't want to be listening to some boss that's telling them what to do. And so this word that you're not allowed to use in the culture of, you know, young uh, women and girls is, well, she's so bossy. You don't want to be bossy because in that culture, if you're looked at as that, you know, you're considered a bitch. And then of course you lose all credibility and blah, 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 blah. And yet that's the critical part of your personality that has to be preserved in athletic competition. And one of the biggest issues right now in taking young uh, women and girls to the promised land in athletics is to get them to embrace two things. One is to get them to embrace competition against their friends. Because in their culture, they're trained to genuflect and smile and be sweet and nice and all those things. And yet in athletics, if that's the way you're going to act, you're never going to get anywhere. So they've got to embrace competition against their friends. They have no issue competing against the enemy. They've all invented, you know, scenarios of why they hate, you know, their rival. But you're not going to be able to prepare to play your rival if in practice you don't get the competitive level to the point where you're now prepared to compete against your rival bitterly. So that's one issue and element. But the other issue is leadership. It's so hard to find it because every girl is so afraid of what everyone thinks about them. So they're reluctant to lead because they're afraid of the girls thinking, oh, they don't like my tone. Oh, they don't like what I've said. They don't like this. They don't like that. And so most of them just clam up. Or most of them, the way they lead is, you know, by being miscongeniality. They find out, you know, what restaurant everyone wants to go with uh, to have the team meal that day. Then they grab the banner and they lead them towards the restaurant they all want to eat at. So basically, they go in the direction everyone wants to go in rather than the correct restaurant. Because the restaurant they've picked isn't the best restaurant for a pregame meal. And uh, they don't have the guts to say, no, ladies, we're going to go here because we need this in order to perform at our best, blah, 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 blah. So basically, uh, those are the two challenges in my environment as a coach of young women is to develop competitive fire with everyone on the roster in every practice and also to develop verbal leadership. So the key what I'm going to experiment with right now with verbal leadership is to basically develop a environment of loving criticism 
And uh, I stole this from uh, one of my business books, and I wish I could attribute it to the right author, but I will attribute it to the woman that guided me there, Chris Porath. She and I are working on different uh, aspects of our program and writing a book on culture together. And what we're going to experiment with this coming fall is to try to create a culture that embraces criticism. Because right now they're all reluctant to embrace it because they're all afraid to say anything because they're afraid of the opinions of their teammates. We certainly have a loving culture, but the critical part of the loving criticism is having the guts to criticize your teammates, <clears throat> which is the verbal leadership that we need in every line. We need it in goal. We need it in the back four. We need it in the midfield three. We need it in the front line of three. We need it on the reserve team that comes in. We need it at all these different levels. And it's not where it needs to be yet because we're all so afraid. We're afraid of what people will think of us if we're holding them to a standard that's uncomfortable, if we're critical. So that's the direction I'm going to try to go in this fall. That's really interesting. And it, something I want to uh, tug on a little bit is, is you talked about competing with your friends. And one of the things that you're, you're legendary for, and you actually pulled this from another legend, Dean Smith at University of North Carolina basketball, um, is taking that data-driven approach to your practices. And first of all, I mean, I, I love it because everybody is looking to leverage data in a way that is valuable. And what, what you're doing with this approach is not only, not only giving you the information on the players that you think are in form, healthy, fit, going and, and going to give you the best chance to win, but then you're also giving them the data to say, this is where I'm stacking up and I need to step up my game. So the, the, the players that we, that we were talking about earlier, the ones that have made that decision that they want to be great are going to look at that and they are going to say, okay, I'm, I'm not where I need to be. I need to push harder. And the other players are going to, are going to get intimidated. They're going to say, oh, well, I guess this is where I am. And, and these players are just going to be above me. What, what did it take to, I guess, build a culture around this data-driven approach to your practices? It's obviously very nuanced, very granular, but when you scale this out, it can have incredible impact. So how did you go about really implementing this into your program? Well, first of all, uh, let me give full credit to Dean Smith, but also full credit to his character as a man, because he didn't have to help me. I mean, if he took a pair of binoculars and looked straight down in our athletic department, he might see the top of my head. So it wasn't like um, there was any real value for him in helping me. And yet he did. So, uh, you know, all of us should look back uh, for all the people that extended uh, a hand to help any of us any step of the way. And he was one that just was so gracious and he would say, Anson, you know, if you're, you're bored one uh, afternoon and you want to come watch our practices, please know that uh, uh, I'd love to set that up if you want to come with your staff. And he was just such a kind <clears throat> and gracious man to allow me to do that. And then when I got into his environment, I was just stunned. I was stunned at, um, well, you, you mentioned the word granular. He had a, an assistant manager standing under every basket. And every single shot that was taken in that practice was recorded. Everyone had a shooting percentage and everything, you know, in a 5v5 uh, game or, a you know, a free throw shooting uh, exercise or a three-point shooting thing. Uh, 
everything was there. If he was doing uh, 2v2 underneath the basket with the bigs, you know, if they boxed out well, that was recorded. I mean, the de- the detail in his practices was just extraordinary. <clears throat> and what you would see is, first of all, he would actually hand you an outline of the way the practice was going to go, which I also thought, thought was stunning. I remember when he brought me in, I had sort of a general idea of what my practice was going to be like. And here's how general it was. I knew if it was going to be heavy, medium, or light. And then I would create stuff, you know what I'm saying? And I was just, I was so unsophisticated as a young coach. And seeing this master and then having this thing handed to me, and, you know, every time there would be a a switch, some noise would go off and they'd go from one exercise to another. And then all of a sudden a noise would go off and they'd all sprint to the water, you know, fountain or something or their water bottles or whatever, then sprint back and it was all sprinting between exercises and everything was being recorded and there was just no wasted time. But the best part was the data because at the end of practice, when Dean was addressing the troops, you would see this head manager call all the assistant managers into him and you would see them sprinting, sprinting to the scores table where the head manager would be sitting. Then you would see them hand clipboards to the head manager. And back then when I'm watching he didn't have a uh, an iPhone with a calculator on it. He actually had a calculator, and he's working out, you know, the percentages of everything in practice. And and Dean's addressing the troops. <clears throat> By the time Dean had finished dressing the troops, he turned around. The head manager handed Dean Smith that day's practice performance ranking from if he had a twelve player roster from one to twelve. First four guys got to leave and shower immediately. Next four guys lined up on the end line, free throw line and back, mid-stripe and back, other free throw line and back, end of the court and back. And the last four guys, I assume, were sprinting until the end of recorded time. I mean, I loved the immediacy of the feedback. I loved the sort of, you know, stick and carrot at the end of practice. Uh, And I just love the detail. Uh, As you said, the granularity of the detail. We stole it, we soccerized it, we took it to a different level. And for us, the day after every practice, and I don't have the capacity to assemble all this and give it to them at the end of practice. We actually have the managers and the analytics team. And uh, uh, Tom Sander, my uh, director of operations, assemble this. And then on bulletin boards at practice, uh, we have 28 different categories and everyone's ranked in all 28 of them. So in terms of feedback, the beginning of every practice, a player can look and see where they rank and everything. So it's not like they need to ask, well, coach, you know, what do we need to work on? Just go to the bulletin board. It'll tell you. Not that we're not telling them what to work on. Of course we are. But this is an additional level of uh, feedback for them to get to the promised land. And it's powerful and it's invaluable. Your comment about Dean Smith needing binoculars to see you and your program is, I think, one is showing the, the the time that's pa- that's passed, but but I think it's also showing your humility because I remember seeing an interview that Dean Smith gave that said UNC is not a basketball school; they're a women's soccer school. So you've obviously <laughs> taken that program, and I don't think anyone's going to need binoculars to see to see what you've done with that program. I, but one of the things I only recently learned about you was you actually went to school and you were pursuing a law degree, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. Um, and then 
ended up becoming the men's coach for a year or two and then got moved in just by happenstance, just by necessity into the, the woman's head coach role. And, and I'm sure that happens at some schools, right? Especially around that time where soccer wasn't a main sport, but you're at a point now where perhaps coaching wasn't going to be your profession and you've coached some of the world's best female players of all time, not even just best player, but of all time. How do you continue to make sure that, that you find that belief in yourself? And do you ever deal with challenges of imposter syndrome when you are dealing with some of these great players where they've dedicated their entire life to this? I can imagine you're there thinking, am I going to live up to the expectations of a Mia Hamm? She wants to be the greatest of all time. Michelle Akers wants to be the greatest of all time. Can I give them what they need? Is that ever something you experience? And if so, how do you deal with that? Actually, no. <clears throat> um, confidence has never been a personal problem, ever, ever. I suck at golf, and yet I'm shocked every time I hit a bad shot. <laughs> it's never been a personal problem. In fact, uh, my dad, I think maybe I was 15 or 16, was really angry with me one day, and I can't even remember uh, what it was for anymore. And I could, we were living in a townhouse in Brussels, Belgium at the time. And I could hear him sprinting up the uh, stairway. And I knew I had done something wrong. And I was trying to quickly review in my mind what I had done that really irritated him. <clears throat> and uh, I couldn't think of it. And so all of a sudden, he bursts into my room. And he gets about two inches from my face. And he says, you know what, Anson? You're the most confident person without any talent I have ever met. And I paused for a second and I said, dad, I'm taking that as a compliment. <laughs> and he got even angrier and he stormed out of the room. He was so afraid he was going to swing and hit me. Um, I have never lacked confidence. Ever. Is there something you, you can attribute to that? Is there anything you can think of even as a kid that gave you that level of confidence? Well, uh, I think my mother takes full credit for it. Uh, she loved me to death. Uh, and, uh, and by the way, my father did too, even though I drove him crazy. <laughs> um, I went to law school for him. He was starting his own oil company. Um, and he wanted me to be his corporate attorney. Uh, the family joke at the time is at least I wouldn't have a tendency to steal from my own estate. And I loved my father. I was a dutiful son, and a lot of my uh, personality comes from him because he was extraordinarily aggressive, but also very confident. Um, and so maybe half the time when I was growing up, I was just imitating my father because when he walked into a room, you knew someone special had walked into a room. He had an incredible presence, and uh, he was combative. Uh, and I was trained by this unbelievably aggressive and combative man. In fact, uh, one of my favorite moments uh, in doing combat with him is uh, uh, I was in college and I was at home for the summer. Uh, and uh, I'm out on the porch arguing with my dad about something. And I can't even remember what it is anymore. And I was pretending to read the New York Times while I was arguing with him. And my mother was out there with me and my dad listening to this argument between my dad, who was getting more and more angry. 
And my mother was just angry with me because I was insulting my father by pretending to read the newspaper while I was arguing with him. Was I reading the newspaper while I was arguing with him? Heck no. My dad was incredibly smart and very aggressive. So I was doing everything I could to hang in there with whatever case I was trying to build. But, you know, as a typical boy that, you know, as we grow up, we all, you know, rebel against our dads. I was uh, trying to make it seem like to my dad that I could argue with him while I was reading the New York Times because, you know, I was so much smarter and, you know, better at debate than he was. And of course I wasn't. Um, but no, I think uh, a confluence of all the different uh, issues growing up, but also uh, we moved every three years. And so uh, um, you become a survivalist as a young kid where you're adapting to a new culture every three years. First three years of my life was spent in Bombay. That's where I was born. Then Calcutta, then Nairobi, Kenya, then Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, then Singapore, Malaysia. And then in between, uh, uh, basically, uh, Addis and Singapore, we spent six months in uh, uh, White Plains. And then between Singapore and Brussels, Belgium, we spent six months in, and uh, uh, I'm sorry, we spent six months in Oakland before Singapore and six months in uh, White Plains before Belgium. And I've just always moved. <clears throat> and this used to terrify <clears throat> everyone in my family, but not me. I had no issues when we moved. I jumped into the local culture. Uh, I love sports. I jumped into the sports culture and tried to master whatever sport uh, they played in that culture and made friends through sports. So I felt very comfortable in the athletic arena. And uh, when I was uh, off to uh, law school, I was not interested in, in coaching. The guy I played for was retiring and he went in and told the athletic director to hire me. And so Bill Kobe, who was my athletic director, basically he called me and I thought he was going to ask me who to hire to replace my mentor, Dr. Marvin Allen. And he said, hey, Anson, uh, I'd like you to be my men's soccer coach. And I'm thinking, well, this is a way for me to contribute to the family income. It was a part time job because the guy I played for taught in the physical education department and also coached me. And so I'm thinking, OK, I'll do this, you know, while I'm getting the law degree and then <clears throat> that's it. I'll that'll be I'll be done with coaching. So I never really had the ambition to coach. And then I'm going you know, to four years of law school because usually you finish in three. But uh, um, because I'm coaching, I took a course shy each semester. I had six courses to go in my fourth year. And uh, the spring before that fourth year, uh, the same athletic director finds me and he says, Anson, uh, there's a women's club that has petitioned for varsity status. Do you mind helping me vet them? Because I have to decide whether or not I'm going to award them a varsity status. And this is uh, in uh, 1979. And in 1972, Richard Nixon had pushed through Title IX. So this is something that was worrying my athletic director about staying compliant with Title IX. And I'm out there with them and watching this team play. And I was impressed. They were fit. They were committed. They were organized. And, uh, you know, I wanted to sort of help this team out and say, yeah, so uh, Mr. Kobe, uh, yeah, let's let's make them a varsity. They've, they've done the work. Uh, I think that that potentially is a very good team. Let's support them. And then no sooner had I said that and he said, well, Anson, if you will coach both teams, I will make your part time position full time. So I come back in the fall. I'm going to law school. I'm coaching the men. I'm coaching the women. <clears throat> I am overwhelmed. 
I'm getting four to six hours sleep at night, but you know, with this insane confidence that I can do anything, I'm hanging in there like grim death. And then finally, I just, uh, there is one thing I desperately need every day. I need to sleep. And I come home one day and I felt so sorry for my sweet wife. I said, honey, uh, we're not going to retire on a yacht in the Mediterranean. <laughs> I'm going to coach for a living. I absolutely love it. And bless her heart. She said, Anson, you absolutely love this. We don't have to be rich. Let's be happy. And uh, that's one of the greatest. Next to the woman I married, that's one of the greatest decisions I've ever made to drop out of law school. And then uh, I coached both. Uh, I've coached men for three years. I got the women's team. I coached both for 10. And then since 88, uh, I've just done the women. Uh, so the evolution into uh, coaching the women was through coaching the men for 13 years. There's a lesson there. I think, I mean, you are unequivocally leaving a legacy, not just in women's soccer, but in, in soccer in general. And it's because you did something you love. If you have a passion for it and you invest that, that pa invest, invest in that passion, you're going to do great things. If you put that work ethic behind it, um, so I, I, I absolutely think that's incredible. One of the things that I, I'm really curious about, though, is when, when you're going out and every single year you're, you're at that time, you're looking to, to add and build on this program. You're, you're looking to build a foundation here. How did, you, how did you approach that, right? Because women's soccer wasn't big at the time. And you're looking to not only establish a program, but also take them to, to some success, right? I'm imagining at that time in, in the late seventies, you weren't thinking I'm going to have nearly 30 national championships by the time I get to, uh, the end of my career, but, but you wanted to establish a foundation and have success. How did you go about doing that and building a culture of success with a team that is just getting off the ground? Well, obviously when you start out anything, uh, you're certainly not, not a master of it, and I certainly wasn't. Um, but um, the qualities I had is I'm a voracious reader, um, and I would try to learn things through the things I read. And so back then, I was reading a lot of business books, and uh, they were telling me that if you want to have an extraordinary team, you have to have an extraordinary culture. So I was really good at reading, you know, whatever business bestseller was on the market and then trying to apply it to my program. Now, was I incredibly successful with the theme of every elite book I read? No, uh, but um, I had no issue if we didn't do something well to get rid of it. Um, I also had no issues with failure. Um, just because, again, uh, I was always confident, even uh, after I had lost, that I could correct it. Um, and I'm an eternal optimist, and I'm a very hard worker. And so I knew that, you know, eventually I'd, I'd try to figure things out. So for me, the evolution of the culture was with trial and error, uh, because I wasn't a, a very good women's coach uh, right out of the gate. Uh, and one of the reasons was um, I didn't know much about women. 
I went to a boys boarding school for my high school education. In those days, the closest I came to a woman was when I had the leading female role in the school play my senior year. So I had no background with women. I came to college at UNC at the time. There was a, a collection of juniors and seniors that were women on campus. But back then, it was predominantly a male school. So for me, when I was given this women's team for the first time, honestly, I didn't know what I was going to do. Now, I wanted to do well, but I didn't know what I was going to do. And fortunately for me at the time, the feminist literature when I was in school in the early 70s was telling me that men and women were the same. And the only reason there was any difference between men and women is because our environments pushed us in different directions. And I was thinking, hallelujah, men and women are the same. So I would design a practice for the men and I would implement that practice for the women. The men trained from two to four, women four to six. This is perfect. Boy, am I fortunate that the feminists have told me that men and women are the same because I'm going to treat my men and women the same. And that was an unmitigated disaster. Men and women are not the same. Now, obviously, the feminist, the radical feminist position is just an effort to try to get men and women treated equally, which I think certainly should be the case. But let me tell you this, men and women are not the same. And so for me, coaching women was trial and error. I would try this and that didn't work. And I could see it didn't work and I would change it. And then I would try that. If that was a little better, I would try to make it even better. So basically in my first and actually not just my first, even to this day, the women are still teaching me how to lead them because I don't have any sort of natural gift. Um, I'm not a particularly warm human being. I'm uh, an introvert. Uh, I'm an introvert in an extroverted profession. So I have to surround myself with people that are warmer figures. And so for years, my warmer figure was Bill Palladino, who's this incredibly warm human being. And he was the perfect uh, assistant for me. Uh, and now uh, Damon Nahas really understands the modern youth culture and is hilariously funny and uh, warm and connected. And so I just surround myself with people that are strong where I'm weak. And I'm not one of these people that's afraid to concede that there are things I can't do and that I'm not good at. And I have no issue correcting mistakes or apologizing for a mistake. Um, so uh, all those things, I think, have really helped me in the most uh, positive way. I think there's a good trait there. We, we talk about this on the show all the time is good leaders really understand their blind spots. It, they understand what they're really strong at and they bring that and they understand where they're weak and they make sure they have people around them that can make up for that. Just like, just like you acknowledged. Um, one last question I have for you before, uh, before we wrap up and give you some time for some final thoughts. This has been kind of a revelation for me as I've kind of progressed through my career, because I always thought you have to learn how to deal with failure, right? You have to learn how to get back up and learn from failure. And, and that's absolutely the case. What I never expected was that sometimes you're going to have to learn how to deal with success. And when you are, in your case, winning a lot, or if you're, if you're in a profession where you're doing really well and you're gaining success and notoriety and whatever it is, 
um, you have to learn how to adapt to that. Um, one of the things I struggled with was if you do have a little bit of success, my natural inclination is, okay, I have to do something better. And now I have to do something better than that. And I have to do something better than that. I'm going to say, I mean, you, you've won nearly 30 national championships. You've won a world cup with the women's national team. And, and I don't know this for a fact, but I can imagine with your personality, you're thinking, okay, I've, I have to take it up a notch. I have to take it up a notch. How do you continue to embrace that success and then take it up a notch the next season? How, how do you deal with the, that, uh, I, I guess the, the ambition that you have and also the expectation that you have and that other people have? Well, it's interesting. Uh, and you're absolutely right, by the way. <clears throat> I think you can be destroyed by your own success. And I think I've made some bad decisions uh, along those lines along the way. But uh, there was something that happened within the last uh, five or six years that really helped me. I went to one of these ritzy Swiss boarding schools in Freiburg, Switzerland. And my father was paying a small fortune to educate me. So I really felt uh, a moral imperative uh, to basically go to the sort of school that warranted the investment he had made in my cerebral development. And so my first choice of schools coming out of high school was going to be like a small Ivy or an Ivy League school because I thought that would uh, uh, pay my dad back for his investment in me. So I was very aggressive in the schools that I applied to. My first choice of schools coming out of high school was Bowdoin in Maine. Because not only was it an elite, you know, sort of small ivy, but it was also close enough to the mountains where I could ski. Because every single uh, Monday at La Villa Saint-Jean, the whole school went skiing. We went to school on Saturdays so we could basically ski on empty slopes on Mondays. And so Bowdoin checked every box. It was a good school academically. It was near the ski slopes. And so a lot of our graduates, our top graduates had gone to Bowdoin and really enjoyed it there. So I was thinking, yeah, Bowdoin's my first choice. My second choice of schools was similar. It was Dartmouth, uh, an Ivy League school. My third choice of schools uh, uh, was uh, uh, Trinity or Wesleyan. I can't remember anymore. Uh, uh, and then I, I needed a backup school because my guidance counselor said, you, you know, you're shooting pretty high, but make sure you got a backup just in case uh, these schools don't work out. So I applied to St. Mary's University in San Antonio, Texas as my backup school. St. Mary's was run by the same Catholic teaching order that educated us at Saint-Jean, uh, the Marianist teaching order. To make a long story short, I was rejected at Bowdoin, I was rejected at Dartmouth, and I was rejected at Trinity. So now I'm off to St. Mary's University in San Antonio, Texas. I only lasted there one semester because, gosh, that was difficult for me. Um, the culture there uh, uh, didn't really cater to a scrawny little uh, overconfident, you know, basically kid. Uh, and every single weekend I was being beaten up for, for something. Usually my mouth would get me into a fight. My fists couldn't fight their way out of. So in order to live... I transferred to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill because that was my home state. And I transferred in after just one semester, which meant these were the lawyers from my dad's oil company that basically got me in because they were well-connected at the University of North Carolina. 
And that was my home state. Every three years, we spent three months on a tobacco farm in Lewisburg, North Carolina. So I was a native North Carolinian. But about four or five years ago, I got a call from the provost at Bowdoin. She wants me to come speak there. And I said, no, I'm sorry, I'm not interested. And she was shocked. I said that so quickly. She said, coach, I'm so sorry. Uh, uh, why aren't you interested? I said, because in the spring of 1969, I applied to Bowdoin and you guys rejected me and I'm still a little pissed. <laughs> and then she said, was there, there anything we can do to uh, convince you to join us? I said, well, if on Bowdoin admission stationery, you guys write me a note apologizing for the egregious error you made in the spring of 1969, I will consider coming up there to speak for you. And to make a long story short, yep, I did end up speaking there and I started all three speeches I gave at Bowdoin with that introduction that I just shared with you. As I was leaving Bowdoin, they gave me sort of a going away package. <clears throat> One of the pieces in the package is a really high quality Bowdoin polo. I wear that thing all the time to just remind me that uh, I'm nothing special. That if I want to stay uh, where I am, I've got to grind. I don't have the brains to get into Bowdoin, Dartmouth, or Trinity. So other qualities have to sustain me. And so uh, that's a wonderful reminder. I like that story. If I could, just to give you something to think about, what you're going to go down in history as one of the best college coaches of all time. And perhaps we, we owe Bowden that because if it wasn't, <laughs> if it wasn't for them, you, you might never have ended up at university of North Carolina and who knows you might be, you might be a lawyer for an oil company right now thinking, man, I wish I was on the sidelines of a soccer field. I wonder how I would do. So just something, just something to think about. No, no, no. I think uh, you're, you're absolutely spot on. I'm just so happy things worked out the way they did. Um, and I am exactly where I should be. And it's interesting you mentioned earlier that uh, we all think that after we've had success at one level, we've got to sort of scramble up another level. You know, I've never believed that. I've never believed that. Um, the U.S. Uh, uh, national team wanted me to become their full-time coach. I was never interested. I think one thing that uh, I've benefited from, I've always appreciated a, uh, a quality of life. And uh, I think I'm in the right place. I like coaching 17 to 21 year olds. Uh, I like uh, the pace of Chapel Hill. And so for me, uh, I never even looked at that full national team coaching position. I did get recruited by many pro teams to jump in the new MLS and I've had uh, professional offers uh, across the spectrum. I've never uh, been interested in taking any of them. I was intrigued with one school. Um, we've always struggled to recruit against Stanford, and I was intrigued. So when Stanford uh, uh, flew me out and offered me the job, um, I did consider it because, boy, would it have been so easy to uh, recruit out there. Um, but I'm so glad I came back um, because, again, it all comes down to quality of life. My quality of life here, uh, certainly with my family, but also with an extraordinary university that embraces me 
an athletic department that embraces me. Uh, um, I'm not driven by money. Uh, I don't go in every after every championship and ask for a raise. I've never done that. Um, I was shocked when I was offered a five-year contract five years ago. I went and it was sort of funny. I was talking to my athletic director and he said, well, Anson, what do you want to get paid? And I threw some figure out there and he said, well, that's not enough. And then he gave me a raise without even me asking for it. Um, I don't need money. Um, I just need my health. I need the health of uh, the people I love, my family. Uh, and uh, I love everything about my community. And I just feel privileged to be coaching at such an extraordinary school and with an amazing staff, with these kids that are just to die for. I love these kids. And uh, yeah, I wouldn't trade them in for anything. I'm sure the irony isn't lost on you before I give you some final time for final thoughts. There was another coach in just a few miles away from you that is also a legendary coach who got recruited to a team in California that he almost went to and decided not to, Mike Krzyzewski. And I, I think he's, he's very much gone on the record and saying he made the right decision staying too. So I think you're in good company with that, with that decision, coach. Thank you so much for the time today, uh, kind of letting me get in your head a little bit, giving some, some good things for our listeners to think about. Um, what final thoughts do you have to leave with the audience today? Well, I think the most critical thing for all of us to, to embrace is um, there has to be meaning in our lives. So what, what gives your life meaning? So uh, the most impactful book I've ever read is Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And uh, one of the most critical lines in that book is uh, the last of the human freedoms is to choose your attitude in any given set of circumstances to choose your own way. And so I think what we have to do is uh, construct our lives around uh, a principal center. And a part of that principal center has to be uh, the way we conduct ourselves. So for me, uh, we have a moral imperative uh, to uh, uh, basically uh, treat the people around you with a certain level of kindness. My favorite uh, uh, commencement address of all time was David Foster Wallace's This is Water. And if anyone has time, it won't take you more than one sitting to read that commencement address. And if we can follow the themes in that commencement address, if we can live the principles of a man's search for meaning, uh, we're gonna lead extraordinary lives. So I would like to leave uh, our listeners with uh, those two uh, things. I think there'll be some people that'll go pick that up. I know I definitely will once we uh, once we finish up. So. Thank you again for the time today. Um, it, like I said, it was an, at the very beginning of this, it was an absolute honor to have you on, um, to be able to talk a little bit about uh, your career, some of the things that have given you success. Uh, and I appreciate that you were willing to come on and share that with us today. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thank you. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to governmenthuddle.com, wherever you access your podcast. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter, at Shittestrayb. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.